Well, welcome back to what will be our first live podcast here on Charting the Course for 2024. If you missed a couple weeks ago, we we re-aired the Morgan Housel podcast episode from 2023. Just thought it was a great time given coming right off the new year, but a great time to revisit that. Again, thank you to Morgan for, for hopping on. But we're back today. I'm joined in studio by Zach Reynolds, our chief investment officer, and Austin Burks, our investment analyst. Uh, these two, as you guys have become familiar with, sit down and, and we have a squared away conversation where we sit down and, and look at the market. We look at the economy. Economy. We're going to talk about a lot of things today, but we're really going to dive in and look back at 23 and give you guys some data there, some high level viewpoints. And then we'll look ahead to, to 2024. Again, not forecasting as we're going to get into, but looking ahead at some things we're watching, the things the things our team is watching and the things our clients are watching. So uh, there is never anything boring in our world. There's never anything boring in the news. So our job is to really sit here and try to take all that noise away. So uh, let's jump right in here. Zach and Austin, I appreciate you guys joining me today. Um, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Pleasure to be with you both. Glad to be here. This time last year, January of 2023, I think we could have taken bets on how many people would say that we were not going to have the year that we actually ended up having. And Zach and Austin, you both put together our market update piece that just came out. But let's dive in a little bit to the market numbers and the data and, and everything that we really saw come to fruition in 23. Give the listeners kind of a general overview of what the market did all the way from equities and bonds. And then we can dive in a little further from there. So Yeah, sounds great. So it was a fairly volatile year. I think we can all agree. Started off uh, with a lot of negative sentiment in the market coming off 22, which we saw, you know, stocks were down, bonds were down. Fed was continuing its rate hike campaign to try to tamp down inflation. The economic expectations were pretty much universally that we were going to have a recession right. sometimes, sometime in 2023. But, you know, markets surprise you. And 2023 uh, was no exception. So S&P gained 26% when you include dividends. A lot of those gains came in the fourth quarter. Um, right. So we went, uh, you know, at various points during the year, uh, we were down. Think, That's right. Think back to what happened in March. You right. had Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, went out of business, both S&P 500 companies that just went goodbye because yep. they didn't handle their uh, duration profile, their bond profile, uh, bond portfolios very well. But then on the other hand, Austin, we had the AI revolution and <laughs> maybe speak a little bit to that as our resident AI guru. Austin's the in-house AI champion, so... Yeah, I mean, I try I, to I try to keep up with it. As it best no, as I it's can. incredible. I think, yeah, spend a little bit of time there, Austin, if you don't mind, of where you've seen it implemented. I mean, heck, I know you both used it a little bit in our market update with our cover photo, which is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so let's spend a little time on AI. Well, no, I I think just to highlight on what Zach mentioned back in March, um, and if we're talking about taking bets on where the market was going to go, everyone was talking about: is there going to be contagion? Is the market? going to kind of collapse or at least within the financial uh, sector. And so, but then right on the tailwind of these two companies or these two banks going right. out of business, you then have the Magnificent Seven, which is a collection of the seven largest stocks within the S&P 500 that have accounted for pretty much the vast majority of the gains for the S&P 500 year to date, or I guess last not year, last, last year, year right. in 2023. Um, but so that came right on the tailwind mm. of these banks going out of business. And so right at that time, market sentiment was even lower than it was to start the year. And so then, but if you weren't fully invested or if you weren't having full market weight exposure to these largest seven companies, then you were going to underperform the, the S&P 500 right. the rest of the year. So it, it has been interesting to see how 
if you were trying to actively move in and out of positions, you would have to have amazing foresight to be able to see the different changes we've seen. And then you come June where you had the debt ceiling and you had all of these different points or the war in the Middle East or the war in Europe or these sorts of things where it's if you're trying to play the game, the evidence shows more often than not, you're not going to play the game well. And this is a great example year of where we've kind of seen that evidence play out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The indexing approach, I think, is it can be hard sometimes. And I, again, I go back to 22 when the tech sector is the largest sector of the S&P 500. Interest rates went up a bunch in 2022 and tech stocks really got hit hard. And the thought process there was tech stocks tend to be growth stocks that have a lot of their uh, earnings that are well out into the future. So when rates are higher, you have to discount those earnings back to the present and they're worth less when rates are higher. So a lot of people going into 23 thought right. tech stocks are really going to struggle again this year. Our approach, as you guys know, is we're going, we think the market is smarter than we are. And so, uh, you know, whatever Apple at 7% of the S&P, we're going to own 7% in our large cap US exposure. Now, we didn't know AI was going to come out and uh, be this massive tailwind to tech stocks, but it did. And if you're not invested that way, right. you very likely missed out on that. Is that where maybe Austin, this you can answer, but is that where you saw Microsoft and NVIDIA, probably even Alphabet? Was that the AI boost that you're kind of talk you saw those kind of come into play there yes and and so the ai revolution and all of this coming out with nvidia with their chips with microsoft with their copilot um software systems like all of these things like that was the tailwind okay. for a lot of these companies where at the time like zach was mentioning maybe it wouldn't have been the best fundamental environment for technology stocks to take off like they did you had a productivity boost due to this new revolution in this in technology. It's crazy. That, that's what led to kind of those stocks taking off. And then, of off. course, the Cybertruck is the only reason Tesla <laughs> is on the list, right? Exactly. You guys bring up great points. I mean, for somebody to sit here, for us to try to sit there and say, okay, what are going to be the seven stocks this year out of 500? Right. Well, right. out of many more than that, but just in the S&P, it's a loser's game. Okay, so pe what, people will challenge you guys from the investment side of things, even in our own investment committee meetings. Mm -hmm. Why do we not just own the S&P 500? And so spend a little bit of time on small and mid cap and then international. Because what we see those do, um, there are some notes in the market update about that. And I think it's important to realize we just talked about these seven stocks and how they really drove it. But it wasn't only those seven really toward the end of the year. Right. Yeah, it, it was those seven for a, a good portion of the year. But you're right, Tyler. The fourth quarter really saw the rally broaden out, which was something we okay. were um, looking for and encouraged by. Our approach is to take, you know, we start with kind of the global market for stocks. And we think you have to have a good reason to, to deviate from that global index of stocks because we don't know where the next great company is going to be. And there are good reasons why the U.S. market is the most important market. We have a very entrepreneurial society. We have good rule of law here. We embrace capitalism more than most other countries. So there's gonna, a reason why get to that. Yeah. The, the U.S. market's really valuable. Yeah. But it makes sense for a lot of reasons, not just from a return standpoint, but from a risk mitigation standpoint for an investor to own stocks, not just in the, in the S&P 500. So when I say that, I mean, small and mid cap sure. US stocks and then international stocks as well. What we did see because the S&P 500 has, has had such a strong run, US large cap stocks are, are valued pretty expensively. Sure. So S&P 20, 21 times earnings, that's above the long-term average. Even within the S&P though, you see some very expensive stocks that 
that increase Pushing that average. That, yeah. So if you look at like the median stock, the valuations are more reasonable. Okay. But when you look beyond U.S. large cap stocks down to mid and small cap stocks, you're seeing much more reasonable valuations. And in fact, international stocks are about as cheap as they've ever been relative to U.S. stocks. This has been true for a while. And so one thing I like to say is valuations are not a good short-term predictor of right. market returns. They're a better indicator of what we might expect over the long term though. And uh, I know I've, I've been saying this for years, so eventually the long term is going to come though. Yeah. And we do think uh, what we saw in the fourth quarter, which is small cap stocks outperformed the S&P by about 800 basis points, 8%, since the Fed kind of came out with their pivot at the very end of October. It was right. about 800 basis it's points. It's really November, December, right? Yeah, November, yeah. December, mm -hmm. really big rally in small cap stocks. Still lagged the S&P for the year, but made up a ton of ground over that time period. Likewise, we're seeing some encouraging signs from international stocks. You know, one, one thing that has hurt international stocks is the strength of the U.S. dollar. Right. The way currencies work, generally speaking, if you're paying high interest rates, that's attractive for a currency that increases the strength of the currency. As the U.S. starts to cut rates, and we may be ahead of some other countries in the in the rate decreasing Decrease, cycle, yeah. that would potentially decrease dollar strength, which would make international investing more attractive. In addition to the fact that valuations are just that much lower. So you may be paying 12 times a dollar of earnings for European stocks versus 20 times here. Right. So almost twice as expensive in the U.S. versus international stocks. So we think that it creates a nice risk return setup for patient long-term capital. Well, and it's been 10 out of the last 12 years, I think you said. That's right. That U.S. has outperformed international. And I think what we've really always come back to when we, when we address this question is we don't want to miss those three to five years that international might outperform. And doesn't mean that U.S. is going to just terribly underperform uh, from a, you know, or have negative years. Correct. It's just international might outperform or might have a better year than the U.S. market. Yeah, Austin, you've done, done put together some nice charts, I think, right. that show what can happen when think, international yeah, outperforms. No, I think my favorite kind of piece that I like to go to when, when we face this question is when you look at U.S. versus international, when the U.S. stock market performs better than 6%, it outperforms international every single time. Okay. When it outperforms better than 4%, it's like 96% still, of the time. Still high. But when the U.S. doesn't have a good year, those are the years when the international stocks outperform. And so that's what you want in your portfolio is from a diversification perspective. You want different risk return profiles to be able to balance out the years where this region has a good year, this region doesn't have a good year. And so that's kind of where you're looking at it. In some years, yes, 10 out of the last 12, the U.S. has outperformed. But then in other years, international outperformed. So it's important from a diversification yeah, perspective. Yeah, we have to guard against recency bias. And I mean, we're all subject to it. And t t I mean, 12 years is, is not a short amount of time. But for investors who are around for the tech bus, so think about 2000, 2001, that is when you really saw international outperform from about 2000 to 2004, 2005. Part of the reason there, and this goes to your point, Austin, international markets have a different sector makeup than the U.S. We have 30% roughly of the S&P 500 in tech stocks. That is not the case in Europe. It's, it's a very different mix. Right. So that can reduce your risk because you're just getting a different mix of sectors exposure over there. And if we did see an environment where big cap tech underperformed, that's where you might see some of these international markets really outperform. Well, and then what I'll add just from kind of the advisor seat is I know we spend so much time hammering home why allocation is so important. 
And in all of these conversations, it's the fact that we're not talking about pivoting from having 70% U.S. exposure to 70% international exposure, right. like in our models. We're not, right. we're not over here tweaking. It's just saying we're going to have a piece of that pie of your equity pie it, toward international. And so if you're allocated correctly, let's say you're a balanced 50-50, 50% equity, 50% bonds. We're just talking about a piece of that 50% equity. And I think what people assume or might think is that we're some firms, and some firms may do this, but we're not swinging into international all of a sudden or swinging right. out of international. We're just maintaining an allocation. Yep. And that's so important. So, And, and by maintaining that allocation, that Vanguard did a study of how much you allocate to international. Yeah. And, and there's like a sweet spot between 20 to 40% of your equity exposure. That's the sweet spot in terms of reducing volatility due to all of these diversification principles we're talking about. And so it's just like you're talking about, it's just a sliver. It's just a piece of the yep. pie, but it's also important that that's there. Yep. It's that boring, kind of annoying piece at times, but it's got to be. <laughs> well, Michael Kitsis has a saying that being diversified means always having to say you're sorry for something. And it's truth. Like if you've got 10, 12 different asset classes in your portfolio, you're going to have a best performing asset class and you're going to have a worst performing asset class. There are streaks clearly where U.S. stocks outperform for a period of time. And then there are streaks where international outperforms for, for a long period of time. We've had a long streak of U.S. outperformance. We don't know when that worm is going to turn, and that's the challenge. A lot of people want to play that game where they're going to jump in and jump out. We just don't think that um, if people are honest and look at the evidence, it's likely they're going to add value through that By game over that. time. Okay, so let's spend the last portion kind of on the market return side of things, looking at bonds and the fixed income side of the equation, which is going to lead us into kind of the inflation conversation that I think is on a, still on a lot of people's minds. So let's see, we had Bloomberg... U.S. ag was up 5.6% in 23, which is a, a nice reversal or comeback, if you will, from 22. Uh, so what are you guys seeing in the bond market as as we look back on 23 and then look ahead? It, it's funny. I, I've been reading some retrospectives of 2023 and uh, kind of a common theme I'm seeing is a lot of people thought 2023 would be the year of the bond, but it wasn't. And I look at returns and I'm like, you know, 5.6%. It's not bad. That's about your starting yield if you look at the Bloomberg Ag. So, yeah, I mean, it was very volatile throughout the year. You saw the 10-year go, I think, below 4% at one point and above 5%. So you had a lot of movement there. The, the Ag was actually down 3% as late as October of 2023, which that is pretty remarkable. It was, much like stocks, an amazing November and December. Yeah. And that's because you saw rate the 10-year Treasury, for example, go from above 5% to 3.9 something. I think we're right around 4% as we're recording this. But what I really emphasize with clients and advisors here is stock market returns are very challenging to predict because you don't know what someone's going to be willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. That can be as low as yeah. eight or 10 times to 30 plus times. That's a massive range. So you could have a very wide value for stocks that is still within the realm of possibility. Bonds are much more math. You have a, if, if your expectation is you're going to get most of your return from yield on the bonds, the income you receive, you know what that number is most of the time right. within a relatively small degree of risk there on that yield. What is unpredictable is interest rate changes over time. If interest rates go up, bond prices go down. If interest rates go down, bond prices go up. So that's going to have some effect. 
But if you buy a five-year bond that's paying you 5% and you hold it for five years and it's a U.S. Treasury, you're going to get 5%. So right. it's much more math-based. So I'm very pleased as I <laughs> construct portfolios to have much higher starting yields today than what we had a few years ago. It makes it much easier to construct a portfolio that is more reasonable from a risk perspective and still achieves, you know, maybe that 7 8% return that most clients are looking for over a long period of time if they're saving for retirement. Yeah, we, we know that we have an idea of what the bond side is going to give us. At yes. This point, we, which is nice. The, the, another way to say that is your ending returns for bonds uh, after a reasonable holding period are highly correlated with your starting yield. So looking back, so I, I sent this out to our team. If you look at the 10 year returns for bonds, they're terrible. They're like one and a half to 2% right. annualized. Right. That was very predictable. <laughs> if you, if you go back 10 years ago, rates were very low. Now what happened in the interim was pretty interesting because rates went down to zero. So you had right. at some points yeah. pretty reasonable bond returns, but over over that long period, over that 10 year period, it was pretty predictable that bond returns were gonna be quite poor. We do read, Austin and I read, even though, you know, we'll get into to the follies of predicting over the short term. Over a longer period of time, it is a little bit easier to predict things with more confidence. So Vanguard, for example, has, has really increased their 10-year horizon investment returns because starting yields are much higher. And I think that's perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, let's hit on inflation. How is the Fed done in your opinion? Do you think, you can tell me how much you want to go into this, but do you think they're going to land that, they're mm. going to achieve that soft landing, if you will, because we didn't get a recession in 23. From what you're reading, the outlooks you're reading, what are you seeing there? What's your best case scenario as far as what the Fed could do or maybe will do during this year, given everything else that we're going to talk about that's going on in 24? The Fed missed the boat on inflation early on. They right. did a poor job. They used the word transitory for way too long. And that really put them behind the eight ball. So like we have, mm -hmm. we can all agree the Fed made mistakes. They did not realize how, what an impact that all the stimulus that we had post COVID would have yeah. coupled with all the supply chain issues and, and, you know, shortages that we saw. I mean, that led fairly predictably, I, I would say to higher prices. What the Fed has done since then is they aggressively increased rates, which was clearly the right thing to do. Right. I would argue they've also gotten very lucky in the sense that the economy and the consumer, particularly in the U.S., has held up better than expected. Stayed so, strong. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, fourth quarter GDP was over 4%. No right. one was expecting that. So are they going to land the, you know, 747 on the aircraft carrier, which it's a pretty it's good analogy what, for yeah. what a hard thing they're trying to do to raise rates as dramatically, as quickly as they've ever been raised. This was historic, how quickly they raised right. rates, but still have an economy not fall into recession, not see unemployment really spike, spike. which is amazing. We're still below 4% unemployment. You have to say, as we stand here today, and this is all subject to change, that they're pretty close to achieving their goal. Yeah. PCE is their uh, favorite inflation indicator. It is down to 2%. It's down to their target. And the economy is still growing. Unemployment is not spiked. They have the opportunity now, I would argue, that inflation has come down so much to start reducing rates. That's what sparked this whole rally. You had Powell right. come out and say, our expectation now is that we're going to start cutting rates next year. We reserve the right to raise rates, but we don't think we're going to. I think they have room to cut rates and still rates will still be in what, what they call restrictive territory. It's going to still put some pressure on people. Look at mortgage rates. Yeah, you know, still... No one's super excited to go borrow at six and a half percent, even though 30 year average, that's not that bad. People still remember 3%, two and a half percent right. mortgages. But it's not eight. But it's not and eight. A half and a percent and anymore. There does seem to be a path. 
that you can see forward from here so where the Fed achieves its goals. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff coming down the the pike in 2024. We have an election. You know, there's some, that'll make a smooth year. Yeah, there's there's some talk of if Powell will stay on the job past the summer, depending on how things look there. So things will change over time. But I again, I I think they've gotten lucky, but they also once they realized their mistake, made the right moves. At least as we stand here today. And and the hard part with dealing with monetary policy, trying to affect the way the economy is going, is it all operates on a lag. And that's the reason why the rate hikes and that's why people aren't certain even what over the next 12 to 24 months look like, because research pretty much shows it's about a 12 to 18 month lag of when when the Fed hikes or when they cut, then the economy feels it about a year to a year and a half later. So because of these lags, it's like you're playing a game, but you're on a delay. And so like that's the hard part. And that's where like up to this point, like Zach mentioned, they've done for the most part, a pretty good job, but it still has to play out. And then they still have to not let it get too restrictive to the point where something breaks, but then they don't want to cut too fast and then let inflation run hot again. So it's it's still very much a, a, a balancing act. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting. So, okay, Zach, in your in the market update, one thing you highlighted was the book, Same as Ever, which is Morgan Housel's new book. Um, that is the book we highlighted it. We highlight a book every year. That's the book we did for 2023. So uh, any of our listeners, if you want a book, we'll get you a copy. But you kind of played off of that and you talked about how forecasts are just the same as ever. And you brought up three points. One, the future's unpredictable. Two, politics and portfolios don't mix. And three, capitalism works. So I want to spend a little bit of time here talking about these because I think these are really interesting. And it is true, forecasting any of that, it's the same thing as ever. It's, it's history will repeat itself. And if you focus in on all of this and you try to predict, or you try to say, well, this political cycle is going to be different. Or if you try to say, no, capitalism's dead, it, it, you're going to, it, it's just not going to go well for you. So let's dive in there a little bit on that. Let's start with the future's unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, it's the time of year when everyone comes out with their forecast. And so, you know, if you're me or Austin, or you're just generally interested in markets, you're probably going to read a lot of that. And I read a lot of it. What's funny, though, is when you look back and you try to track the success rate of these forecasts. And, you know, I picked on uh, Mike Wilson a little bit from Morgan Stanley, who, you know, got a whole lot of publicity in 2022 and he accurately predicted markets were going to go down. He continued uh, his bearish views into 2023. He was forecasting a year in 2023 S&P target of 3,900. We ended right at right below 4,800, by the way. It's a little swing. Yeah, it's a little bit of a miss. But, you know, what I said is, you know, even worse, intra-year, he started lowering his forecast even further to the point where at one point his target was from 3,000 to 3,300 on the S&P 500. And this is a very smart, sophisticated, sure. all he, the people we He's read. got all the resources of Morgan Stanley economists. He's seen all sorts of stuff. It's not to say he's not a smart guy. It's, it's simply to say that forecasting is really it's hard. hard. Yeah. It's borderline impossible. I, I included the quote that I enjoyed from Peter Drucker, the management guru. He says, trying to predict the future is like trying to drive down a country road at night with no lights while looking out the back window. Don't advise. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really hard. It's and then perfect. the other kind of joke that is also true that people make about forecasting is never use a number and a date in the same sentence, Right. Right. It's much easier to say, oh, my price target for the S&P is 6,000, but I'm not going to tell you when because at some point it's probably going to hit 6,000, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, or the market's going to fall by 20%, but don't say when because, you know, the market will fall by 20% at some point. But, you know, you see those folks on CNBC and consider their incentives if you're a person like that. 
every year there's going to be clustering around people predicting a roughly 10% market return. Hey, guess what? Over a long period of time, markets return about 10%. So that's a pretty safe bet. But where you really can make a name for yourself is if you're outside the consensus and you're right. And what very few people do is hold, hold these forecasters to account when they're wildly off target. And, you know, what I think is if you're a client of Mike Wilson or someone who's making these forecasts, are they really, are they out of the market? Are they shorting the market when S&P's at 4,500 and their price target's 3,000? If so, you're really destroying a lot of wealth. And then you, it's like we always talk about, Tyler, timing the market's so hard because you have to be right at least twice. You have to get out at the right time and then you have to make a decision about when to get back in. Last year was a good example. You, we finished the year up 26%, but like we talked about earlier in this episode, there was a moment of time when the bond market was negative and did we go negative on the S&P? Didn't, didn't I think in March we were Summer negative. or March? I couldn't have timed that. I couldn't have said, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna wait until March and then I'm going to get right. all in yep. and I'm going to wait until November and I'm going to put more money in because then the real route, like, it's, it doesn't happen. And if it does, it's luck. And that goes into all the Annie Duke stuff we talked about with the probability of success. And uh, so anyway, uh, number two, politics and portfolios don't mix. This might have been my favorite quote to put in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the market update. So I'll read, I'll read the Milton Friedman quote. Great, great economist, obviously. He said, if you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years, there'd be a shortage of sand. And, and, and arguing which side <laughs> lost more sand. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I recognize we have clients and our listeners are all going to have different political views. We're, we're not, yeah. we're not taking a stand here on, on anything. I think it's, What's interesting is looking back at the actual historical record, which Austin helped helped me a lot with this. But, you know, it's impossible to say if I just told you a generic Republican or generic Democrat is in the White House predicting what market returns are going to be. There's there. First of all, there's not a statistically significant sample size. It's just we haven't had that many presidents to, to really draw conclusions. Yes, they have different policy priorities and that is going to have impacts on the market, like we fully admit that, but it is not at all simple enough to say, hey, if, if you're a Republican and you don't like Democrats and a Democrat gets elected, you should be out of the market. I mean, another thing that comes into play and presidents have no control over this is simply the timing of when they get elected. So Obama took office in January 20, 2009, it, right in the teeth of global financial crisis. Market bottomed in March of 2009. Uh, he didn't have much time to do anything. So even if you if you're a Democrat and you want to give him all the credit, you know, like, credit, yeah. like it's not like he saved the economy. We we clearly were being impacted by things that Congress did, things that the Fed did, taking rates to zero, the TARP bailouts, all those things that were really mostly out of his control. Trump didn't cause COVID, but you know we had yeah. both the COVID fall under Trump, and then we had the massive COVID rebound because of all the stimulus. Again, you know he played a small part in some of that stuff, but. Presidents don't have as much power as I think, certainly if you watch media these days, it's, it seems to be all that matters. What matters is we've got, you know, 350 million Americans deciding every day, oh, how am I going to live my life? What incentives uh, do I have to go create value for the world? That is what matters. That's what we're investing in when we put our money to work. It's not who's president. Which is the capitalism part. And, and we'll get to that. But Austin, on that chart, you, you I believe this is the chart you helped create or, or put up. But mm -hmm. I, I just thought this stat's fascinating because this is like the worst of the worst for both sides of the aisle, right? If you're a Republican or Democrat. Well, in the years when we've had both the House and the Senate and a Republican president, and so House and Senate Republican, and then same thing, Democrat, President, Democrat, House, and Democrat, Senate. The average rate of return, and it's like, you know, we've got, I think, 13 years it's been that way for the Republicans, 36 for Democrats. It's the exact same average rate of return. <laughs> Very rough. 
right? Yeah. Like it's it's not Very close. far when off. You yeah. have, when you have a unified presidency uh, along with both houses of Congress, like it's right around the 14, 14 and a half percent range. And that's for both Republican and Democrat. Like give me that all day long. Yeah. And I'll just keep the TV off. Yeah. Anyway. I, exactly. It's just fascinating. And, you know, one reason I include this, Tyler, is uh, I've, been, I've been through enough presidential and uh, congressional cycles to know that this will be a very hot topic all year long that clients will want to we talk know about. We going into it. And people will want to take action based on their perceived outcome of the election. The other thing that happens every single day that the market's open is the market is pricing in yeah. what is likely to happen. That is one reason, you know, going back to Trump, uh, such a monumental, like, surprise in a lot it of was, ways. Yeah. I mean, the, the market expected Hillary to win. Trump won. You saw massive volatility overnight in futures. And then kind of off to the races when the market kind of came to terms with what that might look like. So that that is happening constantly. So the idea that you're going to wait till election day, you're going to see who wins and then you're going to move your portfolio. It just markets are way too efficient for that. You're not going to you're not going to outsmart the market. Well, and I think one of the most important things was your was your third point, which is why I think this is such a great country and why we all love living in America is because we are pro-capitalism. I don't think any side of the aisle is going to be able to fully take that away yep. and it works. And so let's, let's spend a little bit of time there because you already brought it up. It's the people we, we do get to vote, but we also get to decide where our money goes. We get to decide what, what things we support locally and items like that. And I think it's such an important reminder. Yeah. Well, one thing that really struck me to illustrate this point that capitalism works is the improvement in supply chains post COVID. So it's true. We had all sorts of issues. You'll remember all the remember all the boats off the off the west coast. They couldn't get un, unloaded. Some of the chairs yeah. we're sitting in right now yeah, at exactly. our new office. <laughs> yeah, we there. experienced some of that ourselves. And you know, it, it was horrible at the time. Stores didn't have things you wanted. But what I, I said at the time and turned out to be true is, you know, give it time. Capitalism works. And the what I love, and, and this isn't a this is a powerful concept, prices contain information. So when prices go up, it is a signal to suppliers, to the market that there's a need that is not being met. Ding, ding, ding. This is like red alert. Exactly. Or, or just or just a warning. Or here's an opportunity to or go opportunity. create profit. Yep. That's the whole idea behind capitalism. So when, uh, you know, shippers were figuring out, okay, you couldn't unload here. We need to pay dock people more. We need to find another port. There's all sorts of little things that happen. And it's not because there's some central government planner saying, okay, we need to move chess pieces around the board. It's all these different market participants driven by their own selfish interest that end up solving these problems. And what was so cool to see, the Fed comes out with a global supply chain pressure index. So a high number means there's a lot of pressure. It had its highest number ever kind of toward the end of 2021. When you Kind of, we were coming out of COVID, but demand was super high. So people were wanting to buy things. Suppliers just couldn't do yeah. it. And remember, China plays a big part in this yeah. because the world's factory floor really shut down. So what did businesses have to do? They had to adjust. They had to move manufacturing to closer places, to friendlier places. They did that. And so by the kind of mid to late 2023, just a couple years later, year and a half later, that global supply chain pressure index was hit tied an all-time low. Oh, no kidding. And so, I mean, that that's just so powerful. It didn't even take that long before we went from the most pressure we've ever felt to, hey, it's never been easier to move goods and goods around the we world. We can rely on ourselves. We, we've created 
the factory floor here or for some people, I think. Or Mexico or somewhere closer. And, you know, that may change. But the whole point is capitalism works. If you let it work, it will solve these problems. Another favorite saying of mine, and this this often comes into play in commodity markets, especially where we live around oil and gas. The best cure for high prices is high prices. The best cure for low prices is low prices. What that means when prices are really high, what does that incentivize? Production, right? So if you're if you're an oil and gas driller and prices are super high, you're going to drill more wells. Yep. Conversely, if prices are low, are you going to keep producing? No, you're going to shut in wells and prices are going to go up. So it, I mean, people acting in their own self-interest ultimately inures to the benefit of of everyone, and that's why capitalism works. And it's a really powerful thought, and I think it's the most important thing I wrote in this piece because you know, going back to the politics thing, that's not what matters. We are investing, we're allocating uh, dollars, we're putting money at risk under the the belief that over a long period of time, those people under a capitalist system who do put their money to work are going to get rewarded for the risk they're taking. If we can do that in a risk-aware, diversified way over a long period of time, the evidence tells us that people are going to, yes. they're going to make money. And that that is, if we can boil it down, that's as, as simple as it gets, but it's true. Along those lines, on a very much smaller scale or local scale, during really coming out of you know, the entire world shutting down and coming out of COVID, it became so important to me at a restaurant or if I'm somewhere, and I mean, the whole tipping shenanigans have gotten a little ridiculous. <laughs> a little I mean, out of control. It's to be flip the deal around, like, I don't need to pick up my something from the window and then ask for a tip. Like, anyway. I like the self-checkout ones that yeah. have the tip out yeah. the How tip my screen now, do? which is great. Yeah. But when I'm at a restaurant or I'm somewhere where somebody is taking care of my family or taking care of me or and it's and it's they're providing a really good service, especially if we're at a restaurant with our kids and they're providing really good service. Tipping those individuals because they're willing to work, in my opinion, is it, it really became important to me because here's somebody who's willing to work. They don't probably don't want to be waiting tables or whatever they're doing, but maybe they're going to college and they're getting a master's degree. So it's just that next kickstart. Who knows what they're going to be doing in five years, the value they're going to be creating in their local economy or their little individual space. I, it's just a concept I've really thought about a lot. And it's something that I, I really enjoy doing now because if somebody's willing to work, especially yep. in our culture, yep. they should be absolutely rewarded for it. Yeah. I love that. And that's, you know, we have the freedom to do that here. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. So, okay. Well, let's, let's end here. Our, our firm Full Sail is approaching its sixth anniversary in February, which is just crazy. I'm going to spend some time with David on his Captain's Corner episode, kind of looking back on the six years and everything we've gone through and, and seen and the growth we've seen. So from your seat, for kind of from the investment side of things, uh, let's hit on a little bit of our firm's promise has really stayed the same. From the taking care of clients to the investment management approach, we've kind of got those core values. So what sticks out to you the most from kind of that promise that we've made and we flat out put it on our, our wealth management agreement yep. that every client signs. Yeah. It, it was kind of fun to sit there and, and think as we're approaching that six year anniversary, how much things have changed. You know, it was five of us who started, we had no assets, we had folding chairs and a temporary table when we were signing our first right. clients up. And it's amazingly gratifying. And I appreciate so much the team members like you, Tyler, and you, Austin, who've, who've joined us over the years to where we are today, 500 plus clients, 1.8 billion plus in assets. Approaching yeah, 1920. Probably hit 19 or 20 employees this year. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's really fun to see that growth over time. But going back to Morgan Housel, there are some things that absolutely haven't changed. And you know, my favorite is, even though our attorneys didn't love it, uh, on our wealth management agreement, the very first thing we say, it's, it's the number one thing we say, 
Our firm's promise, we promise to act as a fiduciary and always put the best interests of our clients first. It's the first thing they see. That's tr- That was true when we started. That's still true today. And then, you know, our investment approach, portfolios change over time. And the example I gave in our market update piece, we didn't have any private asset exposure uh, yeah. when we started. Yeah, good point. Today, we have private equity, private credit, private real estate in portfolios for clients for whom that's appropriate. But there there are a, n- a number of other things that have not changed. And also, I'll let you maybe mention some of them because you and I were just talking about our investment philosophy and how we're different than a lot of folks. But you came from a firm that did things differently. We have a, a very different but uh, steadfast approach to kind of our philosophy. I'd love to hear you're kind of, in your own words, what how we do things. I think there's this perception whenever you whenever you say you're an index investor that it's very hands-off, that it's passive, that you kind of buy something, go home, play golf, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, I, you guys only work two hours a day. I, so. I mean, I'm not here most of the time. No. Um, but I think I think actually the opposite can be true as well, where. Yeah. There is still so much diligence and analysis and research on the back end. And in order to fulfill our promise as a fiduciary that we are acting in the best interest of our clients, that there is still so much we have to do on the back end. And I have the pleasure and fun and joy (laughs) of being able to do most of it. But being able to really dig in and dive into the way we manage, the way we invest, the way we are making sure that clients are allocated in the best way possible. That amount of effort and diligence is something that I really enjoy. And it's something that we do on a day-to-day basis that kind of helps us be able to fulfill that promise that we have made to our clients. And that is something that I think is just very important to highlight and is is not necessarily thought of whenever you think of index investing. And there's other ways to add value. And so like that is what we try to do is at least from our perspective on the investment side. Yeah. The way I explain it to to clients that have been with me for 10 years or clients that I, you know, just met, we take a very active approach. We're very hands-on with the management of your portfolio. We just do it in a way where we use ETFs and index funds. And and to to give you guys to give a little bit of behind the scenes look, I mean, we're talking all the way down to can we use a different fund that's more efficient based on what its underlying holdings are too? We're gonna yep. shave one or two basis points off. Yep. I mean, that's how down into the weeds you guys get. And to give you credit, it's it's just incredibly impactful to be able to explain that to clients, um, for them to know that we're going to, we don't time the markets, we don't pick stocks. Right. We're going to focus on that net return, net being the key word. Everybody that's looking at your returns from last year, you're going to get some <laughs> nice gross number. But look at that net, that net client return means everything else is shaved out. Right. Your fees, right. your expenses. Taxes. Taxes, everything. Yep. So no, you guys, from my seat and just being a, a coworker of you both, I appreciate all the work you guys put into to everything you do. You guys probably put in more hours than than most anybody here, just from the all the way down to the reading and the research you do. So we very much appreciate it. But anything we left out, you guys, that you want to add as we wrap up this first squared away? Well, I I do want to uh, take the opportunity, Tyler. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you can't see this, but in our podcast room, yes. We do have a beautiful creation from uh, our client who's a sailor. You know who you are. He created a, a wonderful charting the course themed 
picture, I picture, guess, would be yeah. the right yeah. way. We, we, have it, we have it framed in here, and it's uh, beautifully located so that we can enjoy it. So Our first first piece of memorabilia. Yes, it's a beautiful, picture. beautiful piece of memorabilia. So uh, we love our clients, and, and thank you. Uh, you know who you are yes. to provide this to us. Yes, absolutely. It's a nice addition down here. So yes. Well, thank you both. I appreciate it. We'll be back. We'll do another Squared Away uh, after the first quarter. So it'll be interesting to see what... I'm sure there'll be no surprises. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it'll just be par for the It'll course, be a boring year. Very I'm boring. Sure. Um, as always, to our listeners, if there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. We're here. Contact any of your, uh, any of the advisors, any of the team here at Full Sail Capital. We are more than happy to to help or assist. Um, and if you're someone who's who's not working with us currently and you're interested in learning more about what we do, uh, that's probably my favorite meeting. So let us know. Uh, we're happy to dive more into this. But Austin and Zach, I appreciate it. Have a good rest of the week, and we'll talk again soon. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.